We're going to look at Cain and Abel this month, maybe at least three weeks, maybe four. They are, of course, brothers and the firstborn sons of Adam and Eve. Their story here in Genesis 4 is... But he read a portion of it. We'll not say everything this morning about what's here. We'll, we'll unpack this progressively over this month. There are also a handful of references to these two brothers in the New Testament. And I want to give those to you as well. Just listen to these, but I'll begin with the first one. It's probably the best known, and it's Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. That's Hebrews 11. Hebrews 12, we get this reference. This is Hebrews 12, 24. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, in uh, 1 John 3, we get a reference to Cain. And I just want to give you a sense of what the, the rest of Scripture says about these two men. We should not be like Cain. This is 1 John 3.12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You get another reference to Cain over in the little New Testament postcard that is Jude. Jude is that uh, book right before Revelation. And in verse 11 of Jude, Jude is talking about false teachers. And he says, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. Now keep that phrase in mind, the way of Cain. I'm going to borrow from it. I'm going to give us two takeaways this morning, as, as I often do in uh, messages Two takeaways, very simply put, the first one is going to be that Abel, the way of Abel is the way of belief, and the way of Cain is the way of disbelief. I want to draw a little bit of a contrast between disbelief and unbelief, but that's a simple contrast. Abel, the way of Abel is the way of belief, and the way of Cain, Jude puts it that way, is the way of disbelief. I'll come back to these. One more reference from the New Testament. This is to Abel in particular, and it's by Jesus, recorded in Matthew. Luke also records this. But I'll give you Matthew's version where Jesus invokes Abel in his confrontation of the Pharisees. This is Matthew 23, verse 34. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you... The men he's speaking to, that generation of religious leaders, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, I just give you these New Testament places for you to keep in mind as we base camp in Genesis 4 for this month. We go to Cain and Abel because of our time in Romans chapters 4 and 5. We're doing Romans in sections. We did chapters 1 to 3 of Romans back in the winter, and then we did a little application series out of that in Luke 10. We've just been through Romans 4 and 5, and now this is an application series in the life of Cain and Abel. 
We go to Cain and Abel to apply why faith matters. That was the theme, the subject of our series in Romans 4 and 5. And we go to Cain and Abel because of Adam and Jesus, both of whom were in Romans 5, and Cain and Abel have something to do with both. Adam, of course, is their dad. And what did we learn in Romans 5? Sin comes into the world through Adam and death through sin. We talked about the birth of sin in the, in the, um, the birth of death, I should say. I knew I had that crossed. The birth of death in the sin of Adam. And that death consequence strikes very close to home for Adam in that he loses one son to another. That's a horrible thing to undergo. But it's especially awful for Adam knowing his action in Eden paved the way of Cain, as Jude calls it. John says, I read it to you, 1 John 3, that Cain's deeds were evil. And if we go back again to Romans, to chapters 1 through 3, where we were back in the winter, we learned sin is that. It is personal evil. Even the absence of good or good withheld is evil. And that we will have a cheap grace. We will offer to people and we will cloak ourselves in this cheap grace if we don't have a competent doctrine of sin. So we looked at sin when we were in Romans 1 to 3 as personal evil, but also as a power at work in the world. And I want to stress this again because I actually had somebody from this church try to argue with me that sin is not a power after I taught that series. Now, you're welcome to argue with me. I don't mind that. And this person wanted to argue that sin, he said, you said sin is a power. It's not a power. It's just fallen human nature. But even in this story, in Genesis 4, as well as when we get to Romans 7, sin gets personified, doesn't it? Sin is crouching at the door. Romans 7, Paul will say, sin capitalized on what the law told me about not coveting and produced in me all this covetousness. What's going on? Sin is getting personified due to its being a power. I rest my case. (laughs) Sin requires a host. Augustine uh, defined evil as parasitic. It has to have something good to latch on to, to be what it is. Sin is crouching at the door, God says to Cain. What a, what a vivid image. Its desire is for you. And Cain gave himself over to the power of sin, to put it in Romans 1 language. Sin is a power at work in the world. And we are hosts. We are very hospitable to it. But the way we deal with this reality in ourselves and in the world is not by proving how good we can be. The way we deal with the sin reality is by faith. This was our topic in Romans 4 and 5. And Romans gives us the the concept, the doctrine. But how does this work out in actual living? Cain and Abel really lived. And in their story, we see how this begins to, to play out. By faith, we place ourselves under the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what we do to do right. In the story, God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desires for you, but you must rule over it. I read to you Hebrews 12 that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Abel died faithful, how much more so did Jesus? And because our faith is placed in Jesus, what does this mean? 
We need to talk about faith because for most people it's just a concept. Or when they get into trouble, it's something they feel like they've got to muster up. Or if they want something from God, they 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 had this this idea that somehow I've got to show God that I really mean it, and I, and I, I've got to conjure all this faith. I've got to generate it. In fact, in some ways, the prosperity teachers have influenced our idea of faith in America more than Scripture and even more than churches like ours that are not a prosperity gospel because they've, they've preached so prominently in the public eye that faith is this thing you muster up. Faith is not something you muster up from within yourself to show God and everyone else how serious you are. Faith is about the seriousness of sin and that it is a response to God's call and provision to us as sinners. Faith is the act of giving yourself to Christ in order to be covered. Faith is about Jesus. I didn't read this to you, but two verses later where we read, where I read to you in Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, you know the rest of the sentence, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because faith is not about something you muster up. It is about someone you go to. We cannot please God without Jesus. And this is why Hebrews 12 says the blood of Jesus speaks a better word to us than the blood of Abel. Here are Adam's boys, Genesis 4, and both of them show us our need for Jesus. I hope you realize this. I think you do, but I'll say it anyway. The Bible is a single, great, seamless story about Jesus Christ from start to finish and all the way through. And that doesn't mean we put Jesus into every story. It means we can get to Jesus from every story including this one way back in the pre-flood days. These original legends of the fall. These antediluvian brothers. I had to say antediluvian at some point. It's one of my favorite terms. That's actually a term. The people who lived in the time before Noah, the great flood, are called antediluvians. That's free. I just throw that in. Legends of the fall will cost you $3.99 to rent on Amazon Prime. $12.99 to buy. And I went with that movie as a series title because fall in that movie did not mean autumn. It meant Eden. The fall. In Legends of the Fall movie, if you've seen it, the tragedy that befalls the Ludlow family in Montana of a hundred years ago runs through the brothers. We'll get in next week to the, the envy the possible envy of of Cain toward Abel, the envy in the movie of Legends of the Fall, uh, Alfred toward his brother Tristan, it's the echo of Cain and Abel. It's a different story, different context, but familiar theme. The Legends of the Fall shows us that sin damages even the closest bonds. The bond between brothers is supposedly unshakable. But ever since Abel slumped onto the ground by the hand of Cain, we're all on notice. Our closest bonds, even of family, can be shaken. They can be broken. Why? Because of sin. Look at what sin attacked in the very beginning. It attacked worship and family. Eugene Peterson wrote something in one of his books in reference to another biblical person, but it applies to Cain too. Here's Peterson's words, quote, Sin stories, after a while, tend to sound pretty much alike. 
Virtually all sins ring charges on the theme of wanting to be gods ourselves, taking charge of our own lives, asserting control over the lives of others. The precise details of our sin may not correspond to Cain's, but the presence and recurrence of sin does. And then he says, But then the moment we recognize our common sin bond with Cain, we're ready for the real surprise, the gospel story that develops out of the sin story. That's what we have. What is the gospel story? Hebrews 12 puts it in a sentence. Jesus' blood speaks a better word to us than the blood of Abel. Now, Abel was not sinless as Jesus was. In Matthew 23, where Jesus called Abel innocent, I read that to you. Jesus did not mean he was sinless. What do we find Abel doing in Genesis 4? Look at the text. He's offering a sacrifice for himself. Abel drew near to God through what? The firstborn of his flock, verse 4, Genesis 4, verse 4. Why? In recognition that he's Adam's son. That when God found his parents after their sin, he covered them with what? With animal skins, meaning something had to die for people to be right with God. Abel got that. Cain resisted it. He didn't just resist it, he rejected it. Remember I read John earlier where he calls Cain evil. His deeds were evil. But then John says his brothers, he doesn't mention Abel by name, but we know who he's talking about with brother. His brother's righteous. Righteous doesn't mean Abel had no sin. It means he believed. He believed. Now here's the first of the two takeaways. The way of Abel is the way of belief. Let me unpack that. It's very simple to say, but what does it mean? The way of Abel is the way of belief. Abel knew what to do with his sin. He knew that he had sin and he knew what to do with it. And that's what belief is. That's what belief does. That's what makes faith, believing faith. You know what to do with your sin. You take God's provision to yourself. Belief is knowing what to do with your sin. It's going to God in the way God prescribes. It's availing yourself, the provision God makes for you, not what you will make for yourself. That that is the faith that pleases God because it necessitates Jesus. The faith that pleases God is not about you drumming up this sort of, oh, I'm going to show God how serious I am. I'm going to really mean it. The faith that pleases God is the faith that recognizes I have to have Jesus before God. Faith is believing. Faith is a response to the seriousness of sin. For us living this side of the cross, it's the act of giving ourselves to Christ in order to be covered. I say it again, faith is not about something you muster, it's about someone you go to. Abel got the point. How did he get that point? He got it from how God covered his parents after their sin. God made a provision for them. God covered them with the animal skins. He did that. And so Abel offered the firstborn of his flock. It says in verse 4 of chapter 4 here, for his covering before God. Abel recognized this is the only way my sin is going to be covered. Both the sin that I inherited, that he came by honest, as we say, being a son of Adam, but also his own sin, his own contamination. So when Jesus called Abel innocent, 
It did not mean he had no sin. It means he didn't deserve what Cain did to him. When John calls Abel righteous, it does not mean Abel was somehow better than Cain. Only that Abel knew what to do with his sin and did it. And that's what made Abel a believer. Cain was not. Although Cain showed up in the place of worship. Cain is a disbeliever, not just an unbeliever. I'm going to make a very thin distinction here between disbelief and unbelief. I'm driving at something specific, but please don't make too much of this distinction as if these are hard and fast categories. And you say, well, you know, Uncle Bill, he's he's more of a disbeliever really than an unbeliever. We don't have to do that. It's a thin distinction, but there is nevertheless, I think, a, a discernible difference between how unbelief operates and how disbelief operates. What is the opposite of faith in God? It's not atheism as we think of that, though that is oppositional to God, certainly. But in fact, I would say some atheists are closer to the kingdom of heaven than some churchmen. The opposite of faith in God is faith in oneself. A disbelieving atheist will have nothing to do with God except maybe he will put himself around Christians if he likes to argue with us. A disbelieving churchgoer will be present to worship a church member. He might have a lot of Christianity deposited in his life, but what he does with his sin is he tries to take care of it himself. And he does that either through denying that he has sin or covering for himself in some way. God sees through that. He did with Cain. He does still. We cannot please God without faith. Because we cannot please God without Jesus. And faith connects us to him. Without Jesus covering us, we don't have a prayer. And in American Christianity, we have this experience, particularly in the South, of looking to Jesus to get our start with God. And then we'll find our way from there. But that's not faith. Jesus doesn't just give us our start with God. He sustains us with God all the way. And that is why the Christian life is about loving Jesus. That's the distinguishing mark of a believer. A believer is someone who loves the Lord. And if you love Jesus, obedience to him then follows. It's not automatic. There's still struggle in that. There's still questions. There's still all kinds of things. But... If you love Jesus, the obedience to him usually follows. The regard for him is there. The care for what he has taught and and how he lived his life. Cain fascinates me because here he is making a sacrifice to God, didn't he? He comes to the place of worship. Which means he knew God was there. He wasn't an atheist. He even spoke with God. He argued with God. He presented himself at the place of worship with an offering, but he is faithless to his core. His way is the way of the disbeliever. This is our second point. The way of Cain is the way of disbelief. The first faithless person in Scripture is not so much an unbeliever, but a disbeliever in God. Again, this is a paper-thin distinction, but what is the discernible difference? Here it is. An unbeliever 
doesn't really know what to do with their sin. Unbeliever may not even realize they have sin. They may not know to take it seriously. But a disbeliever looks at God's provision and says, no way. Not for me. I don't want the way that God makes for me. Look at Cain. He's making an offering. He's present to worship, but it's all on his terms. It's all on his terms. Now, if you if you think this way of disbelief out with me, we all know we're in a secularizing age. That is, we live in a day and time in which we are encouraged through multiple means to not believe in God, to disbelieve if we do. I try to be really careful now when I make references to our water culture because evangelicals by and large are very fearful people and we fear the culture. Oh, that culture's the scary thing out there outside our doors. We're part of the culture, all right? It's in here. And I try to be really careful now when I make reference to our water culture to not play into our fears of culture. What follows here is not in the interest of stoking fears. It is in the interest of emboldening our wisdom. There's a lot of apathy toward God out there. Yes. Disinterest. Disassociation. Disaffection. Dissent. Don't need him. And apathy, I've said to you before, is the furthest thing from love. Apathy is really the opposite of love. Hate has a pulse. Hate has feeling. Apathy has nothing. That's the opposite of love, is nothing. And there's some apathy toward God all around us. But at the same time, have you noticed? Do you interact with people? Have you noticed that while there's this, this, this front of apathy, there's also, there's a deep yearning for God? They wouldn't call it that. But the hunger for more from life is a hunger for God. What we have to realize is that the way we experience Western culture now, the secularizing of it, the moving as far to life on our own terms as we can uh, and, and still function, that secularizing impulse of encouraging disbelief, this is an accomplishment. We didn't drift to there. We moved that direction. Secularized people aren't adrift so much in unbelief as they are drilling down in disbelief. They've been actively encouraged to embrace something other than God to give them meaning. What does Cain look to? He looks to himself. He looks to his land, his self-reliance. He brings stuff up out of the ground. If you can eat it, he can grow it. And while self-reliance is a good thing and self-improvement is a good thing and faith in yourself can be a good thing in the sense of knowing you can do what you know you can do because you have the skills and the training and the want to, the drive, that's fine. That's not the way of Cain to believe in yourself. The way of Cain is to believe in yourself as a substitute for believing in God. I will cover me. I will not put myself in or under God's provision, but I will make my own way. And I may even use, I may find it helpful to use a little bit of what God provides for me. Cain is is quite a capable man. 
As the chapter goes on, Genesis 4, you discover that he's the father of all these culture makers, builders and artisans. But his line keeps moving further and further away from God. And in this, Cain is a strikingly modern figure who also shows up at church. Listen, the issue between us and God, and we saw this in Romans 4 and 5. Romans 4 and 5 gives us the doctrine. The issue between us and God is what are we going to do with our sin? What are we going to do about our sin? This is a problem for God. It's a problem for us too when we're honest. What are we going to do about our sin? We're all born into it because of Adam. And and we're all active in it ourselves. Are we going to handle it ourselves? Are we going to effectively deny that we're sinners? We do this all the time in many ways. We're going to say certain kinds of sins. We're not guilty of that. You don't know your own heart. What makes you an unbeliever... An unbeliever is you don't know what to do with your sin. You don't really know, you don't understand about God's provision for you in Jesus. And and it's really a short space between belief or unbelief and belief because every believer, everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and follows him does so for finally realizing what? Realizing I have sin and Jesus has done something about my sin to cover me. What makes you a disbeliever A disbeliever is you know what to do with your sin and you still try to handle it yourself. Uh, To put it in Cain terms, you, you keep tilling the ground around you to produce all this good stuff for God. Your heart's not in it. It's all about appearances. It's all about how you look and how you want to come across rather than just fully embracing God's provision for you in Christ. Or you accept sin as a category, theoretically, but you deny its power over you. That problem is other people's problem. This is the point in God saying to Cain, verse 7, If you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. How is he going to do that? By availing himself of God's provision. That's what God's getting at when he says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? It's never been about works. It's always been about faith. Doing well in this context is not works. It's you've got to come to me the way that I prescribed you come to me. And Cain just says, no. I won't. Outside the church, in this particular culture in which we live, disbelief, what does it look like? It looks very self-beholding. Our age is as self-beholding as it is. Not because people suddenly discovered vanity in the 21st century. It's not just because it's not because people are just so much more vain now. No, it's because the relevance of faith in God has been taken off the table. What do you have to worship but yourself and others like you when God is out of the picture? But inside the church, disbelieving looks like bypassing Jesus to prop myself up on something else. It often has the distinct odor of self-righteousness, ways I one up on others. Because my views, my tastes, my actions, my lines that I've drawn are truer and nobler and better than yours. Cain is the patron saint of self-righteousness. He just exudes it 
He actually speaks to God, but he's angry at God. He knew God was there. He took some things, some produce. He took some of the shinier fruits off the table, his best stuff. I mean, everything was ripe. He he gave nothing that was rotten. And he made it into a sacrifice. It was ripe, but it wasn't right. See, the Mosaic law will come around later. And the Mosaic law will require of Israel certain grain offerings and first fruits. So don't misunderstand. It's not the substance of the sacrifice itself as if God's got something as fruit and grains. Under the law, Israel's giving a lot of that stuff. It was that the sacrifice bypassed the requirements set in Eden that something had to die for a human being to be covered when we approach God. And Cain said, not for me, it doesn't. That's the epitome of self-righteousness. Why is this important? Because what faith is supposed to do, and it doesn't do it all at once, it's progr- God has a lifetime with you. What faith is supposed to do is it's supposed to kill that independent streak in us that is the source and flow of all of our unrighteousness and self-righteousness too. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11, 6. Faith is not about mustering something up. It's about who you give yourself to. You're going to give yourself to yourself, self-beholding, or you're going to give yourself to Jesus. It's about what you do with your sin. Cain would not go to God for whatever reason. We don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll engage in a little speculation next time. Plausible speculation based on some clues we have in the text and, and some, some, some thinking on this. But Cain wouldn't go to God's provision for whatever reason. And so you know what his sacrifice was? His sacrifice was a faithless act. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? Because faith is meant to take us to the only one who pleased him. The one whose blood speaks to us a better word than the blood of Abel. And Abel died faithful. How much more Jesus? The object, the center, the ground, the hope, the beginning and the end of pleasing God runs not through you or me on our best days. It runs through Jesus Christ for all time. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. We're going to sing. And then I'll send us out by benediction. Lord, help us as we look at this ancient story. As we look at it to not miss the import Thank you for what you've accomplished for us, Lord Jesus, for giving us a a sure hope and a solid foundation for which to relate to your Father, our God. Thank you for your grace and for your nobility, for your outshining us all, our best efforts on our very best day. If we could truly see how it pales to your righteousness, we would be utterly amazed and undone. But we would be even more grateful because that's in some ways what heaven will be.
a full-on living experience of recognizing how good you are. And we'll never be bored with that. We thank you for that occupation that awaits. But now, Lord, we pray that our faith will grow. And that it will grow not as a kind of something we muster up. It will grow as a recognition that faith is about the one we go to. Over and over and over again through all of life. Thank you that you receive us how you find us and that you work on us. And you mold and shape us into the person you want us to be. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.